applicant tracking systems and the algorithm with which they use are not making the decisions for us. Human beings are making these decisions. We are using various inputs to make those decisions. One of those inputs is this matching score. The way that I personally review resume, I would not know of another way to review a resume without a keyword search type of approach. So what you're saying, Adam, is if I want to increase the likelihood of me getting into your maybe pile as opposed to the no pile, because there is no yes pile, is there? Because you're not the hiring manager. So the yes pile is on someone else's desk, but your desk has a maybe pile and a no pile. And I think the six second thing, I think when you look at the average, it might make sense because if you spend 30 seconds looking at a maybe and you know almost immediately that this person is a no, it's really a question Mm. of how quickly can you figure out no. I mean, if you go into a bar and you say, okay, who are you interested in? Look around. I bet anybody could go, no, 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 right? But the maybes, well, they probably take a little bit longer. That's fair. And there's a lot of maybes out there. That's why we have LinkedIn profile. Hello and welcome to Business Psychology Unplugged. Today, I'm very fortunate to have Adam Zeef, who is a talent acquisition specialist and more importantly, an incredibly bright young man who also was in the master's degree program that I was a part of in New York City. Adam, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. The reason I really wanted to speak to you is because of all the students that I worked with, you were probably the first to have established a career in talent acquisition before you arrived in the program. And not only that, you were the first person throughout the time I was in that program that actually helped create a job, an internship and more. Within your first semester of the program, which I thought was amazing in the fact that you helped another student generate more on her resume, et cetera, not client-facing stuff, it can be remote. So how has remote working, like how have you experienced this phenomenon? And I know we could talk about it forever, but but certainly like, Mm -hmm. what do you think are the big takeaways out of this whole work from home experience in relation to talent acquisition? I think it's a huge positive. I am definitely a big proponent of remote work generally. I have seen it work for myself. And as far from a recruitment standpoint, the most significant effect is that it opens up the well, right? That's what we've talked about. And if we want more diversity, equity, and inclusion in our hiring to tie it back, then we need to expand our reach. And that is what remote work has done if your organization allows for it. So before, when I could only hire people from this 17-mile radius of Manhattan for in-office work, now I have the whole country. I have people across time zones. I have people that used to work from home before the pandemic and are very comfortable with it. I have people that it's still new to them and they're still getting a feel for it. I have other people that are ready to get back into the office and they prefer to be away from the house. So the conversations are changing. I think it opens people up to talk about what is important to them when we talk about work-life balance and sustainability and mental health and all those sorts of things. But again, the biggest change for me personally, and I would imagine for many other recruiters, if their organizations allow for it, is that now I can source and recruit from the entire country. My criteria has opened up. My expectations have been broadened. I am now more comfortable talking to people across the country. And it has changed my bias in the sense that I would not have thought someone on the West Coast working specific time would be interested in working for an East Coast organization or an organization that works largely East Coast hours. And it turns out there's a lot of early birds out there. (laughs) They're more than happy 
They're more than happy to start early and end late. I no longer have that bias anymore because I was exposed to it. And exposure leads to expansion is a great phrase. I did not consider that before this. So I think that those are some key takeaways for me in the much larger picture of remote work of which I hope is here to stay. Are you noticing an increase? I mean, I'm guessing the answer is yes, but I don't really know. Like over the past year, since the pandemic began, and, and obviously this is being recorded just as it's coming to an end in the US at least, or at least it's looking similar to that life of normal sure. that we were used to before. Sure. What is the kind of growth of remote jobs? Do you see any data in the industry about this? Have you seen any reports about because I remember back in like April of last year, a good way of looking at it is to go on LinkedIn and just look at like number of remote jobs. And I remember when this all <laughs> began, it was about 65,000 remote jobs that were on LinkedIn and it was increasing day by day. I don't know what the number is today, but I'm guessing it's probably a lot higher than that. Where do you see it going? Sure. North of that, for sure. I said this back in March of last year. If you're an organization that does not allow for, I call it freedom of choice when it comes to work format, work setting, work environment, working from home, hybrid, blended, balanced, two days in, three days in, something that allows for a variety, you're not an organization that can keep up, in my personal opinion, regardless of industry. Now, there are certain roles that require you to be in the office. Mm -hmm. There are just hands-on roles. Yeah. And that is something to take into consideration. So that's an exception to my rule and my belief system in the future of remote work. My partner works for Amazon and is productive and as successful as she could ever have been and potentially more so mm -hmm. than being in the office. We also both work longer hours and it's fair to say that our employers are getting more out of us <laughs> than they were before. I don't work nine to five now. I probably work eight to six and I put a few hours in a little bit later for sourcing. That is something that from a job seeker standpoint to keep in mind that yes, you may win on the remote work, but your employer is expecting you to put in that amount of time and then some back into the organization. There's kind of an, an understanding then that, hey, you're not traveling to work anymore, but sure. that means that you probably will be picking up your email half an hour, 45 minutes before work is supposed to start. You probably will be a bit more active on your email in the hour after five o'clock or whenever you're leaving work. But there's probably also people that they slack off remotely too, right? I mean, organizations, while I think there's a lot of evidence for people that are very eager to work, eager to improve their career, there's probably a lot more transparency now of the people that are slacking, because if they were slacking in the office, now they can slack even more. I wonder if there's there's probably a percentage of business owners out there, they're listening to this or business leaders, because we try and tap into that market too on this podcast. There are probably some people out there that are thinking, hey, if I can't see them, they're probably not gonna be working. What would you say to those people? Out of sight, out of mind is a common uh, kind of expression employers have responsibility to come closer to their employees and employees have a responsibility to come closer to their employers during this time. Over communication is important. And that's why we have tools like Zoom or Teams or Google Hangouts or text message or whatever it might be. So we both have a responsibility to each other to stay closer to each other during this time. To employers that feel that candidates or employees aren't putting in the same amount of time or effort or productivity, I would say there are a great number of tools that you can use to monitor employee performance and activity, mm -hmm. where if they don't move their mouse or something for 15 minutes, it pings them or alerts them. That does them. sound like a little bit... That's big yeah, brother. That's big brother. I worked for a company that said you haven't moved your mouse in the past 15 minutes, or, or maybe the siren will start going up on the screen. <laughs> I mean, maybe those companies exist. I mean, I suppose wherever there was a cubicle, now there can be a remote office. And if you sat in front of a computer screen, forget what you do for a living. If you basically spend a big chunk of your day staring at a computer screen and not mm. staring at a human being or a piece of machinery or whatever it is you need to be dealing with, you can basically do that from anywhere in the world. 
right? It's just a question of being at the office when you're needed at the office. So I'm all for the corporate world staying remote, but also having the important sort of idea creation, brainstorming, challenging meetings face to face. But you must be having these conversations with all of these people all over the country. And I guess my question for you would be, you're already pretty stressed out, I'm guessing. I mean, you mentioned stress and how you have these KPIs, you have a timeline, you've got so many people to hire in 90 days or less. You've obviously got a lot of pressure on you to get these results. So how does adding the entire country and maybe even to some people, the entire planet, how is that going to affect your stress levels? Are you going to find yourself kind of rushing everywhere or, or is it just like, well, we'll just have more applicants. We'll just have more people to pick from. So it's a great question. I would prefer to have more applicants than less and have to maybe do more sourcing and headhunting and poaching. So the difference between passive and active candidates and applicants. So active applicants are those that are currently in their job search. They're actively looking to find work. And I want more of that because it takes some of the responsibility off of me because they're already interested. They're warmed up to the role. They've showed an interest that they've applied. They've read the job description and maybe they've taken a look at our website. So those people we want more of. I don't want to spend too much of my time having to go out and source people and first convince them that this is an opportunity worth considering, that it can pay them just that little bit more, that it can give them the expanded health coverage that they're looking for, that we can allow them to work for home where their current employer is now returning to the office. So that extra bit of convincing and negotiation and persuasion is a big part of sourcing and recruitment and talent acquisition. But I don't want to spend the majority of my time doing that. And so when you open up the country to active applicants, mm -hmm. you are reducing the amount of time and stress of trying to convince people that you have something shinier over here. And you are having genuine conversations with people that are interested and actively in the market at this time. Because the holy grail of sales is finding people's the right place, the right time, mm -hmm with the right product, something along those lines. And that's what I'm looking for in recruitment. So opening up the country or the planet, to your point, just allows me to spend more of my time having genuine conversations with people who genuinely want the job. It sounds a little bit like finding a partner in the relationship space. <laughs> like You're basically saying, I'd rather find out who liked me before calling them up, right? But that makes sense, right? Obviously, it's a lot more work to just try and knock on lots of different people's doors and tell them how wonderful life could be if they were with you in a relationship. But sure. wouldn't you also say from a kind of supply and demand angle, or even I suppose from a, an attractive standpoint, the people that companies really want are the people that already have a job. The people that companies are less interested in are the people that are out of work or looking for an exit. What's your thoughts on that? Because your strategy and this new active applicant pool growing could systematically mm. lead to you doing a lot less of that hunting that you're talking about. So that would change the types of candidates that you're presenting. Yeah, that's another great question. So a few things. There's definitely more to sift through and vet when you open up the floodgates to a larger applicant pool. I have to spend more of my time reviewing resumes and application questions and answers and for certain lower skilled jobs, I'd say there ends up being 70 to 80% not qualified, unqualified. And that can feel like you're spinning your wheels a lot of the time. And you're not really getting to the 10, 20%, 30% that really matters or is really qualified. In that sense, going after those that are passive, aka have a job, is a more selective approach with a higher probability of it being a match of having a job fit with a lower likelihood of convincing. So it's a bit of a trade-off. And that's why as a recruiter, you need to do many things. Mm -hmm. You need to have a multi-channel approach. Another thing I would say is that there are a significant amount of people out of work now 
that are qualified that are being selective. So I'm talking to a great number of people that have not worked since March, April, May, June, July, August of 2020. That for all intents and purposes, everything that recruitment has taught us up until this point would say that is too much of a gap in someone's resume. We cannot be assured that they still have what it takes to do this job. But the pandemic has forced us to change our perspective and say, no, this is a highly qualified person who had a, let's say, a high paying job in a specific or specialized industry who is otherwise perfect for this role but hasn't worked in six months because they're trying to find the right thing for them. They're not looking for a pandemic job, as some people say, or a job that is a means to an end. And so as a talent acquisition partner, it's our job to influence our hiring managers to think along those lines. So when they see a resume of someone who hasn't worked in six months, they don't go, hey, Adam, why am I talking to this person? They realize oh no, all their previous experience was highly relevant and correlated to the position. Right. So the fact that we've had such a meteoric change to the industry should really bypass that rule of this amount of time between work. That's really interesting. Yeah, it does sound like the people that you're talking to, you're going to have to be convincing the hiring managers, but also there must be a certain degree of counseling that you must be doing to the people themselves because it must be hard for them to stay upbeat and positive. Are they really going to be the same selves that they would have been a couple of years ago applying for a job? If you were speaking to this person two years ago, now you're talking to them after they've been out of work for a period of time. Do you notice, do you pick up any of that? And I suppose, do you feel you have any role in in helping them bridge the getting back onto the boat, so to speak? Yeah, it's a great question. I definitely consider part of, we talked about talent acquisition and the difference between TA work and recruitment. And again, I said talent acquisition is a bit broader than maybe 40, 50% is recruitment. I'd say 20%, 15, 20% is coaching and counseling. It is our responsibility to support candidates throughout the interview process. We talk about net promoter scores and stuff at the end of the experience. We talk about candidate experience. We talk about candidate feedback. A lot of that is directly correlated with our ability as recruiters to manage their experience and their expectations. It also means putting them in the best positions as long as it's done so equally to be in the best position for each of their successive interviews or rounds. And so One of the areas where candidates can help themselves is when I ask them the question, what have you been doing since then? What have you been doing since you were furloughed or displaced from your job for no fault of your own? It's fine if you want to say, well, I've been very selective. I've been looking for the right opportunity. That's a great answer. But what have you been doing with this time? Mm -hmm. Have you just taken some time off to self-reflect? Have you gone away and taken a vacation? Have you spent more time with family? Have you put some time into your studies? Have you picked up another certification? Did you enroll in an online MBA program? Those things matter more than candidates think. Mm -hmm. And so how you have used your quote unquote off time is important for me to get a sense and an understanding of how you think as a person. Are you the type of person who took the last six months off because you could? Or did you really put your mind to work and stay stimulated and got after it, but also was reserved enough not to take the first job that was available? That's what I want to hear. Mm -hmm. And you could also talk about all the research you've done for this specific role. There is nothing that a recruiter or a hiring manager wants to hear more than the amount of research that you have done into why this is the right fit for you. And if you can express that and articulate that, then I'm more willing to now support you and I can assist you and I will respond to you in a potentially more timely matter. And I will talk with you before that next role play exercise. And I will brief you a little bit further on that writing sample that you have to do. And I will maybe give you a heads up if the hiring manager is hard to read. Like these are little tips and tricks. As long as they're done fairly and equitably, Mm -hmm. I am willing as a recruiter to do 
as long as the job seeker is doing what they need to do. So if someone says, I spent the last six months watching Game of Thrones and Sopranos, and I could tell you everything about it, probably that's not going to go down so well. We will have a great conversation because <laughs> I'm a movie and I'm a TV series buff, but you probably won't move forward in the interview process. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a certain degree of transparency that you don't expect to hear when someone is trying to get a job. But maybe sure. if they did all of the things you said and they managed to squeeze in a, full, a couple of seasons of the classics, <laughs> that shows that they've got a bit of a risk-taking personality, I guess. I agree. I mean, look, these conversations that I'm having all day long, I talk to easily a dozen people a day in back-to-back -back calls. It's nice to have a some type of connection with the person I'm talking to, that they are relevant. Like one person today was a little bit overly emphasized the fact that we both have the same name. That's not going to go far <laughs> because we both have this, we're both named Adam. But if you are genuine, it's all about being genuine in your interests or the, your hobbies. I would love to know who you are outside of the office just a little bit. I may even ask, depending on how the interview is going, what do you like to do with your free or spare time? That's a purposeful question. I'm not wasting airtime here. I genuinely want to know how you spend your extra time. You read, so do I. What's the latest movies you caught up on? There is a place and time for that type of chit-chat, if you will. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's all extra information for you to help to understand who they are as much as you can with very limited information, right? Yes. One thing that I think is probably industry standard, and you mentioned it, was in relation to the percentage of these resumes that basically get scrapped. The number you threw out was about 80%. But I read that people in your profession spend, on average, six seconds reviewing an applicant. Is that correct? Is that fair? Or is that just kind of like lies, damn lies and statistics? I am cautious to say it's six <laughs> seconds, but it's under 30. It's quick. We don't really have the time. And that's an expression I don't like to say often when you don't have the time for something because you want to make the time for it and it's worthwhile. But you get good enough, a little bit robotic, if you mm -hmm. will, in the way you do things as a recruiter. You've almost have a built-in algorithm and you are trying to find keywords and phrases that are similar to the job description or to the conversations that you have had mm -hmm. with the hiring manager during your scoping call. We actually have within our ATS system, which is uh, smart recruiters, something called a match score. And it rates it from zero to 100 on how relevant from a keyword search standpoint, their application is to the job description. I try not to give it too much weight, mm -hmm. but I give it some and it may tilt the scales in one or another direction. So is it six seconds? I don't think it's that low. Maybe that's indicative of where I am in my career. Maybe I'll get better where I could take a quicker look at something and know. I'm not sure if six seconds is meant to be a good thing or a bad <laughs> thing. To some, it's a bad thing probably. You couldn't possibly review everything, let alone a cover letter, which between you and I, I believe is a bit of an outdated function. I want to ask you about that. Why do you think it's outdated? Okay. And, and is it possible for people to really separate themselves from the pack with, with one? The reason that I say it's outdated is because of the time constraints that apply to our job. There is not enough time to read through a cover letter. What I would prefer, and I believe that this is not just me talking, this is a general philosophy, I believe, of recruiters out there is in place of a cover letter is a summary or a bio or a link to your website or portfolio. That's what it is. Something that tells me more without trying to provide so much information and fluff that I can't get to it all. A summary, a bio, any relevant links or work samples is Totally fine. We're talking about maybe just like a bunch of bullet points or a paragraph is what you're describing. Three to five sentences, paragraph, even similar to the summary that you list in your LinkedIn profile, right in that summary section, right. sub, uh, section or the objective section of a resume. That is, I think, a better use of your 
time. You know, there are people listening that are thinking about the world entering the world of recruitment. There are people that are in HR departments that they're doing recruiting all the time. This, sure. this maximization of time thing is a big deal, but they're also applying for jobs themselves. Everyone applies for a job or is, is headhunted at some point. And what you basically told us is that you need to make sure your resumes have got all the keywords in it that the people in that profession are going to be specifically using. Is that fair? It is fair to take what I'm saying that way, but we have to put it in context. Applicant tracking systems and the algorithm with which they use are not making the decisions for us. Human beings are making these decisions. We are using various inputs to make those decisions. One of those inputs is this matching score. The way that I personally review resume, I would not know of another way to review a resume without a keyword search type of approach. So what you're saying, Adam, is if I want to increase the likelihood of me getting into your maybe pile as opposed to the yes. no pile, because there is no yes pile, yes. is there? Because you're not the hiring manager. So the yes pile is on someone else's desk, but your desk has a maybe pile and a no pile. And I think the six second thing, I think when you look at the average, it might make sense because if you spend 30 seconds looking at a maybe and you know almost immediately that this person is a no, it's really a question mm. of how quickly can you figure out no. I mean, if you go into a bar and you say, okay, who are you interested in? Look around. I bet anybody could go, no, 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 right? But the maybes, well, they probably take a little bit longer. That's fair. And there's a lot of maybes out there. That's why we have LinkedIn profiles, mm -hmm. right? So when I get caught in a maybe scenario, I will go to their LinkedIn profile and I will take a look at some of the experiences, certain things they've highlighted, their summary section, anything else that might contribute to their application. Mm -hmm. I'm also looking for discrepancies sometimes between their LinkedIn profile and their resume. So I really want to see dates match up. A lot of people right now, this comes back to people not working for several months. It also talks about transparency and being genuine. A lot of people are putting on their LinkedIn profile that they're still presently working at an organization, that they're not. But on their resume, they are putting the end date. Mm -hmm. And so... What they're trying to do, understandably so, it's not like I don't understand what you're trying to accomplish. And to be honest, it kind of works. If you put that you're presently working for an organization and not that it ended six months ago, I'm more likely to have a conversation with you. And so it's hard for me to tell people not to do that, but you lose credibility, you lose trust, you lose honesty a little bit. And it's not a great conversation or first impression when I ask you, are you still working at this organization? And you say, no, I haven't worked there since March 2020. And I say, well, it says on your LinkedIn profile that you're still there. That's not a great first impression. And I think we're a little bit past the days where recruiters are willing to allow that to slide and for you to say, well... It's a difficult time. The job market's tough, unemployment. So I left that I was still there. Or I'm on furlough and they may call me back. And that's a tricky one, right? Because a furloughed employee or an unpaid furloughed employee is still an employee of the organization. Right. It's a little bit of a loophole. So I can't fault people for saying that they presently still work there. I would just say proceed with caution a little bit, and if that makes sense. You know, I'm wondering if there's another explanation that they give you, like they just forgot to update their LinkedIn profile. Does anyone say that? They do. <laughs> you know, if, <laughs> and that's where as recruiters, we kind of have to have our BS meter yeah. on. Look, as a recruiter and as a person, as a human being, I want to believe people. And I want to take you at your word. And so if someone says that they forgot, it just kicks the can to another problem, which is a lack of preparedness. It doesn't really get right. you completely out of the situation. Or it paints you as someone who's like not very good with technology. Or that. So you just live to fight another day kind <laughs> of thing. And maybe you're an, a job seeker who's weighing out those two things. Would I prefer to be presently employed, but lack of preparedness? You're kind of weighing those things out. What's the lesser of two evils? 
a lot of the behaviors will be fairly similar to a micromanagement, but your intent is good. So I think that makes a lot of sense. One question that I had for you about external sure. versus internal recruiters is I know you're a very detailed person. We know we've gone through your assessment data and I know that sure. if I remember correctly, you're a CS temperament. Is that, is that right? I haven't got it in front of yes. me. I'm just thinking about. That's true. Conscientious and steady. Yeah, our last conversation on this was a year ago, but I remember you being a CS temperament. So conscientiousness and stabilizer from the disc for those that aren't aware of that. So that profile, that's kind of the worker bee profile. That's kind of just don't want to upset anybody, just want to do a really good job. You know, you're sort of very particular about the right answers, et cetera. To me, that seems like a mile away from what you would typically find in an external recruiter, which would be sort of more under the sales umbrella. And they probably, I'm basing this off of just like my own experience and bumping into salespeople, they're probably going to be pretty low in conscientiousness. They're probably going to speculate slash exaggerate a fair amount. They're going to be fast talkers, charismatic, perhaps a little bit less concerned about how people feel about stuff. But obviously, if they want to do a soft sale, they probably need to be fairly high on the stabilizer, as that was my area. I was a software salesperson many, many moons ago. Sure. But there were definitely people in that space that didn't really care. They just wanted to get the deal done. So sure. I wonder, do you notice a lot of those personality differences? Do those people make it into internal roles? Is it really that different, I guess? Is that how much crossover is there between sales and that sort of personality versus the detailed personality that you are in both of those? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think that if you are a highly conscientious and methodical person, you might find agency recruitment difficult because of the speed with, at which you have to work. And unless you become incredibly efficient in that preparation and preparedness, I mean, we're talking about reviewing a resume in six seconds. That's a difficult thing to do for a highly conscientious person. I think you have to balance that out against the wins. Where have I had success? The best part of my job is placing someone in a role who is equally qualified to the job description and what is being required called job fit. That is the best part of what I do. It makes up for all the challenges and all the stress and all the conscientious work, busy work that I do leading up to it. And I think that that comes back to motivation. And I think that that connects and correlates directly with who I am as a person. My main motivation is to see happy candidates become happy employees, creating a happy workplace environment that breeds success, not money. You have to make a living, of course, but that is one of the reasons that I am so thankful that I got to skip the agency recruitment lifestyle because it would not have allowed me to connect. And this is important for job seekers. And this is why it's important to take disc assessments and certain personality assessments. Because when you learn about who you are as a person, it helps you to identify where you might feel satisfied and fulfilled in work. So knowing I'm a high CS, although after the fact, it explains why I'm better suited for an internal recruitment role. Mm -hmm. Now, if you really love recruitment and you're a people person, but you're not a high CS, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't take the agency route. It just means you have to, I often talk about delaying your dreams a little bit, and you have to put in a little bit of time the typical journey is to go through agency recruitment. Why? Because you learn process through an agency. Agencies have process. They have order. Mm -hmm. There's rules and regulations to how to hire people that you learn and structure that you learn in an agency, whereas internally, you may have a bit more wiggle room and room to change the process. So again, if you're a high CS or not, you can find your way into internal recruitment one way or another. But again, I'm very, very happy that as a CS that I found myself internal recruitment because that is where I'm most internally fulfilled. When you have people that are looking for a job, one of the things that you will find is a lot of external recruitment, maybe not so much during the pandemic, but for the most part, the external agencies that you're describing, 
they will get rid of someone within a, a week, maybe even less than a week, if they're not cutting it. You know, you don't really know until someone picks up the phone and starts making calls. And probably within a week, you're going to know, are they picking up the phone? And are they actually like doing anything that resembles what we do? Probably wouldn't take very long. Yeah. And so I have noticed, uh, I worked very briefly in recruitment. I, I literally did a week in external recruitment when I was back in my sales days. And sure. it wasn't really for me, but perhaps that's because I was more interested in like the internal recruiting world. So I think that there's a, sure. I think there's a, a large portion of the jobs and that's where people enter, I think, recruiting for the most part. Because if you're going to bring someone in internally to do your recruitment, you probably want someone who's already got recruitment experience. And so that's correct. probably where the applicant pool is so big from an external standpoint. That's correct. I mean, it's simply a product of supply and demand, right? You have less openings for an internal recruiter or talent acquisition partner than you would at a large staffing agency that is full of them. And so if you're looking to break into the field, that is oftentimes why you start with external recruitment, you learn the process, and then ultimately you move on to a startup or internally for an organization. Okay, so let's. I think that's a really important point. I want to emphasize this. So what you're basically saying is, hey, you might be from the sciences or you might be from the human resources and you want to get into this field. And the long-term goal is to work for a company and be that resource. But you have to basically go and run with the horses over there because they're in a different race, right? There are going to be people that are just doing it for the money. And I'm not trying to throw external recruiters under the bus because I'm sure that there are many, many successful people understand that long-term is, you know, you want to build relationships with the clients. Well, what I'm saying is that as an actual recruiter that is perhaps more I want to spend 20 minutes looking at this candidate. They might be freaked out by the pace of these external agencies. They might look around them and see five other salespeople and they're not identifying themselves as salespeople and they might be giving up pretty early. And what you're telling us, I think, is that, hey, stick it out, stay in there, stay in the fight, because three years from now, you're going to be much more attractive to internal companies, companies that are hiring internally for your role, than perhaps some of these other money-driven people who may be less interested in the long-term success of the candidates. That's exactly what I'm saying. There is a good probability that one of the clients that you're recruiting on behalf of might want to look to hire you. So if you're working at a staffing agency, they'll put you on multiple accounts, multiple clients. And those are your stakeholders. Those are your SMEs. So in working with them over time, there's a probability that they may want to stop outsourcing for contingency fees, and they may want to have someone internally in a recruitment position. Who else for them to look at than you, who's already been doing it successfully? A lot of times that happens in sales when you're selling a certain product or offering, and the client wants to bring you in. That happens. It happens a lot. And the staffing agency is happy. It doesn't mind all that much because there's always another recruiter who's going to fill that role. It's a large enough field. So absolutely stick it out, run with the horses a little bit, learn the process, understand the demands of the job, learn from the people around you, struggle together, and then ultimately get a lot of exposure to different fields, different business acumens, working with different types of stakeholders learning different processes. That is a great reading ground for learning and experimentation. And then when you start to develop yourself and you learn about yourself during those first couple of years, then you'll be ready to say, you know what? I want to be an internal recruiter for a fintech company, mm -hmm. or I want to be an internal recruiter for commercial real estate or so on and so forth. There's a question I have about this. Like, Should people be picky about the industry that they decide to work in in relation to recruitment? Yes. And I say yes immediately like that because it does matter to me. I have a certain affinity or attraction to non-technical roles, even though I do a lot of tech sales recruitment. I actually prefer non-technical recruitment. That's just something that speaks to me a little bit differently. It doesn't necessarily change how I work or how I apply myself. I think I'm at a place now in my career where I know what effort to give and I'm able to be consistent enough 
across any role. That's the steadiness and stableness part of my personality. But if you find yourself recruiting for a role over and over again in a field that does not appeal to you, that is not something that is going to lead to mid to long-term fulfillment and probably something you'd walk away from. Yeah. For those listening, can't see me. I just put my fingers up to my head like a gun at that (laughs) point. I mean, I think you're right. It's one thing doing a job and helping people, but if you absolutely find what it is you're recruiting for very, very dull and the kinds of people you're going to be talking to, you find very, very dull, then you're going to have to be working twice as hard to stay interested and stay motivated. Which kind of brings me to an important question, which is how much of your community are taking drugs? You don't have to mention anything, anyone by name, right? And, and you, you, this is just about people you know, right? Not about you. But where does Adderall and other substances come into play when you're under massive pressure to get results? You've got very little amount of time. And I say this because I have a friend of mine. I won't mention his name. Well, actually, if he's listening, his name's Cole. I won't mention anything else than that. But anyway, the guy was running around like a headless chicken, absolutely headless chicken. And he was in recruitment and he was doing external recruiting, but he was running around like a headless chicken. And I just wonder how much that stimulants, I should say, are fostering. I I know they're part of the sales industry. I wonder how much they're working in recruitment. Sure. If you're prescribed medication from a licensed physician, and so I have to take the politically correct That's route okay. here, but then sure. Look, if I take the, this is a personal philosophy that if you require a drug or a stimulant or a vice of some kind that could lead to certain dependency and you need it in order to do your job successfully, then that's not the right job for you. I personally believe that. Now, could I get more work done or could any of us get more work done if we took some of these stimulants? The answer is yes. That's what stimulants do. They keep you up for longer and allow you to apply more focus and attention to one thing. But that's not a good enough answer to stay, to keep doing it. In an external recruitment role, your day-to-day feels like a sales function. That is why you have to tap into your personality early on. And you might have some thoughts around this as to when you should take certain personality assessments and which ones you should take, because it is identifying what's going to have the greater chance or likelihood of fulfillment and success in a role without the need for dependency on anything else. And so I almost use personality assessments as my anti-drug in a way, right? Because it tells me what I can rely on that's natural. If I am a high CS person chemically, right, then I know that jobs that fulfill or appeal to a high CS type person in terms of its day-to-day functionality, then I'm more likely to be in that role, stay in that role, be retained, and not have to seek outside support. So it's a bit of a long-winded answer there. Again, I'm sure people are doing it in a remote world. You could probably do it more without having to, you don't have anyone checking up on you. Right. It's interesting. People have been addicted to caffeine and that seems to be the kind of drug no one really sees as an issue. But I can remember when people back in the day when I was selling software 20 something years ago, it would be knocking back the five hour energy drinks to hit the phones. And, And you knew then that these people hated their job. When you're grabbing the energy drinks or you can't function without a coffee, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the relationship between IO psychology, industrial organizational psychology, the degree that you did, your master's degree, and the world of work for you today. And I say this, I'm not trying to lead you in any way. However you feel it did or did not impact you in terms of the work you do. Yeah, that's a very good question. It's one that my parents have asked me. It's one that I get from people that are considering higher education or specifically an IO or organizational psychology degree. Is it worth it? That's the million dollar question. Is it worth the money? Is it worth the time? It's also something to consider in a remote learning environment, going into class or not. Look, recruitment and talent acquisition is one of the many, many jobs that folks can go into or lines of work that folks go into after pursuing an IO degree. IO, I have felt to be a bit too narrow 
for me to break into. And thus, I have stayed in recruitment. The pandemic also changed my plans a little bit. I think it's quite possible that if it weren't for the pandemic, I may have gone into more of a consulting function, whether management or business consulting. IO, that was part of my initial plans with IO. But obviously, we have to make other plans sometimes. And so I'm delaying, I think, some of the things I'd like to do in the future around whether it's consulting or business coaching or performance management. And I'm sticking with recruitment and almost specializing in it at this point. So I believe it's relevant in certain ways because I took classes like job design and I believe one in recruitment. But some of the things around statistical analysis, I won't use as much. That's the truth. Or research methods, which I learned with you, which was fantastic, but not something that I'm required to do. And when you work for a larger company, there's separate teams and divisions that do those things. And I've thought maybe about stepping into a new team, a new branch of an organization and working maybe with compensation and benefits and supporting them a little bit or the rewards team that's focusing on pay scale and compensation levels. The part that's great is that with an IO degree, I can do it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I didn't have the degree, I would tell myself probably wrongfully so that I can't do it. I'm not qualified to do it. Now I can at least say, oh, I'm qualified to do it. I deserve an opportunity to do it. I could raise my hand and get an interview to do it. I just now can make the personal choice if I want to do it. And the exposure that I've had in my graduate program has taught me about if I may want to do it. And so in that way, it has opened up opportunities for me may very well possibly have allowed me to land some of the jobs that I've had. I mean, I talked about my background skipping over agency recruitment, external recruitment, and moving right into internal recruitment. I may have had a very different and more challenging time if I wasn't simultaneously getting my degree in IO psychology and playing up some of the recruitment coursework that I was learning. So I have found it relevant. I have found it applicable but not necessarily as correlated yeah. just yet. Yeah, I really appreciate the candor there because whenever I'm talking to students and graduates about like the relationship between the jobs and their degree, I always get this impression that there's a certain expectation from this question that I want to encourage people to go and do this degree or I want some self-aggrandizing of, oh, it was great and thanks very much. But I think what I want you to at least see is that, and then not just you, but anyone who's listening is like, this is a journey. Your career is a journey. And just like when you begin your career, the opportunities around you are fairly, they seem very vast and overwhelming and maybe even impossible. And yet you sort of climb from one position to the next. And I think when I look at your role, and this is just from the outside, I see talent management. I see a part of talent management, which is talent acquisition. And within talent management, I'm thinking about people, people analytics, HR. And so really, when you look at the growth of someone in your world, you're looking at it through the lens of a talent acquisition person. And before that, as a graduate of IO, so I need to get a job in IO in a consulting capacity, but like the percentage of jobs of people that come out of IO programs and go into consulting is probably less than 1% right? It just seems like the sexy job, the the career that everybody wants. But in reality, you can still get to those consulting jobs through a career progression. You know, you start off with talent acquisition, then you move into talent management, then you become a senior HR person. Now you're consulting. People climb the corporate ladder in a variety of different ways, and you can't be skilled in everything. I mean, think about the person that runs HR, right? They don't have to be an HR generalist. They could have been really, really good at one area of HR. And then actually someone said, hey, you know what? You've really built a great team. I wonder if you'd be really good at building out the rest of the team. And suddenly it's less about their expertise and more about their leadership skills. Yeah. And that's very applicable to me because there have been times where I've been asked to do things that were not under my typical remit simply because I showed an interest in it or I showed some type of qualification to do it. And 
all of a sudden I was leading the sales training. <laughs> That's not anything close to my typical remit or typical job functions. It pulled me entirely away from recruitment for the week. And I had to stand in front of a room of not entirely complete strangers because I hired all of them, but let's say a room of 10 to 20 people and teach them about inside sales and selling sponsorship and delegate passes for live and virtual events. It was something that I never thought about doing, but we needed some help. We were a little understaffed in the training department. I had known enough about the role and they found that I had enough, I guess, public speaking skills or something where I could keep them engaged for the week and teach them a thing or two. So that's a good example of moving into a kind of different role. Yeah, I think there are people from HR and there are people like there are people that are doing HR degrees. There are people that had some kind of majoring of HR, perhaps in a bachelor's degree, or they're coming in from an organizational psychology program. And they're not necessarily seeing that any job they get is a foot in the door. You yes. are entering an HR department, basically, for the most part, right? Maybe if you're lucky enough to experience a group of consultants slash partners that are specializing in whatever, they're still probably coming under the umbrella of HR. So you're entering, you're getting your foot in the door. And whether you spend one year or five years doing one particular thing and becoming really good at it, that doesn't mean that's mm -hmm. what you're going to do for the rest of your career. There are going to be right. opportunities once you're in an organization. I always find it interesting when you're talking to someone who's been working somewhere for six or seven years. And you say, hey, do you have any interest in working anywhere else in the company? And they say, yeah, actually, I really want to work in marketing. And you say, so what are you doing about it? Oh, well, nothing. I mean, I'm not qualified in marketing. I've not got any experience in marketing. But hey, guess what? Contact the marketing department and tell them that if there's anything that you can help them with in your spare time, you will, because that way you can start to slowly build up your resume. And guess what? The company, if and when they get an opportunity to hire within marketing, they will think about you because you're a great employee. They have a track record of who you are and what you've done, and right. they don't want to lose you to marketing somewhere else. So I think that even though that's, it's fairly unfair, perhaps, to the wider world of applicants, I mean, we mostly hire people that we know, that we trust. Yes. The rest of it is just a question of catching up with the knowledge. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of internal mobility, we call it, at Informa. People move brands, they move teams, they change job titles within reason. And we are all for it. And then as a recruiter, I backfill them. And we, so we deal with that a lot. And we give priority. We give priority to internal candidates for new openings in different areas of the business. So you're absolutely right to come back to your point where when you get a foot in the door, it's an opportunity to reach so many other areas of the business. And you should always be thinking, am I enjoying this? Am I satisfied doing this? Have conversations with people outside of your department so you could hear about their day-to-day -day and learn about it from an inside perspective. Because we're always learning. We're continuing to evolve. You never know who's going to say that one thing or you're going to hear it in just the right way that's going to set you on a potentially a different path. And so continue to explore, continue to experiment, continue to raise your hand. And if you're not working for an organization that allows for internal mobility, then that tells you a little something about the values of the corporation. And then you need to think about if your personal values. So yeah. That's brilliantly said, Adam. I, I fully endorse that. And I want to say thank you so much. I'll let you go because I know you're a very busy sure. man and we've used up a lot of your time. But thank you so much, Adam. I think you've been an incredible voice. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. But if you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review, or just tell your friends about it. Until next time, this is Business Psychology Unplugged.